The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from John 15, 1 through 8. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Christine. Good morning. Uh, my name is Lee Eric Fesco. I'm one of the pastors here, and if I may, let's, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Father, Thank you for the word that you've given us. And today I want to give special thanks for this, this passage that you've put before us. Thank you. Thank you for the miracle that it is. We ask that your Holy Spirit be here with us and open our eyes and our ears to the truth that it tells us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like to start us off today by playing a, a quick game of word association. I'm going to say a word, and you, quietly to yourselves, make note of the word or set of words that pops into your mind after I say this word, okay? The first word that I would like to say is football, football, okay? A lot of possibilities here, especially today. Today is a big day in the world of football. Today is the, is the big game. And I'm willing to bet many of you have made elaborate plans to watch it. It's a day for a party. And, and anyone can enjoy it, whether you watch the game, the commercials, the halftime show, or all those things. It's fun. It's great fun. And it's become quite the annual event with an expected viewership of more than 100 million people. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Okay, here's another word. Uh, this is actually three words, and I'll say them, and let's once again quietly to ourselves make note of what comes to mind first. Here we go. Are you ready? Kansas City Chiefs. I'm disappointed with some of you. I can see it on your faces. The Kansas City Chiefs are one of the teams playing today in the big game, be that as it may. I know at least some of you what you're thinking. You're not thinking about the game of football. You're thinking about a pop star, aren't you? 
For those of you that don't know, there's a player on the Kansas City Chiefs who's dating a famous pop star celebrity. And sometimes, just sometimes, to me, it feels like people are more focused on that than the actual game. Okay, you see, this is why the 49ers must win today. (laughs) To save football. (laughs) To return football to its proper place, a sport, a game of skill and competition. Football is not a soap opera. Okay, here's one more word. Here's one more word in our game of word association. Are you ready? What comes to mind, again, quietly to yourselves, what comes to mind when I say the word Israel? Israel. Okay, that's a loaded one, isn't it? For some of you, yes, you might be thinking uh, something ancient, something biblical. Others of you might be thinking something more current, a nation embattled in conflict in the Middle East. All kinds of thoughts and feelings and imagery comes to mind when I say Israel. But let me ask you this. What is the true Israel? What is the true Israel? You see, I think the word Israel has become so commonplace that we sometimes fail to remember or even understand the significance of what Israel is. And more importantly, what is the true Israel? So what is it? To what am I referring when I say the true Israel? Now, to answer that question, I'm going to need to back up a little bit. We're in the 15th chapter of John, and believe it or not, understanding what I mean by true Israel is going to help us understand exactly what's being said here in John 15. In fact, I don't think if we don't get a good grip on what we mean by true Israel, I'm not sure we can really understand our passage today. Back when I was a kid, I I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. I may have just revealed my football bias. And we didn't live far from a train station. It it, it couldn't have been more than a mile away. And yes, there was a commuter train that that would go through our town, and cargo trains would come through as well. And and if your timing was off in certain instances, you'd come to the town intersection of of the main boulevard and the the train tracks, and you'd see the intersection there, and sometimes you'd get get stuck behind those train tracks when the warning arm would come down, and there you are, stopped behind the arm as it came down, and so we'd wait. We'd wait for the train to pass by. Now, as kids, maybe I didn't fully appreciate the delay that this was causing us, but there were times when my brother and I would count the number of cars the locomotive was pulling. And I can remember instances where we would start counting and we'd count one after the other. And there were times when it would get near or pass even the 100 car mark. It was a big deal if we made it to 100. We we couldn't believe it. My dad, however, was frustrated to no end that he got stuck behind this tree. We've got places, this train, we've got places to go. Car after car after car. All the while the arm flashed and dinged incessantly. Ding, 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 ding. 58, 59, 60. Our our passage today opens with these words. I am the true vine. I am the true vine. I want you to understand something right here from the onset. We'll read that passage and think, oh, that's nice. Jesus is, is using a metaphor. But please understand, this is not just a convenient metaphor. In reality... With those five words, I am the true vine, Jesus has just dropped an atomic bomb. 
as he speaks to his disciples. When, when Jesus says, I am the true vine, I want you to think of those five words as the locomotive. The engine, the engine of the train coming through town, and behind it are some 100 cars worth of Old Testament cargo. Those five words carry with them tons upon tons of Old Testament baggage. So this morning, let, let's ask the text these three questions. The three questions we'll ask the text are, what do we mean by the true Israel? What do we mean by the true Israel? Who is the true Israel? Number two. And three, how do we be a part of the true Israel? Okay, so what do we mean by the true Israel? When Jesus says, I am the true vine, believe it or not, it wouldn't be much different than if he said, I am the true Israel. And the disciples would have understood this too. They were good students of the word and they would know, they would recall passages like Psalm 80, where Israel is likened to a vineyard. Listen to this. This is Psalm 80 verses 8 to 11. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. It's, it's a picturesque description of the loving manner in which the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. How he set aside his people. He gave them provision and, and, he, and he cared for them. But then listen to this. Listen to how the psalmist continues, verses 12 and 13, speaking of this vineyard. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. In other words, this vineyard, Israel, has been decimated. It's been torn up. Why, why would the Lord allow this to happen? But listen, this isn't the only place in the Old Testament where Israel is likened to a vineyard. There are numerous references. So the disciples would have picked up on this. They understood why the vineyard was overrun by animals. Listen to this. This is Isaiah 5. Isaiah 5, verses 1 and 2. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of its stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. Now listen to this. Listen to what the Lord's expectation was for this vineyard that he planted. And he looked for it to yield grapes, fruit. He wanted the vineyard, he wanted Israel to produce fruit, good fruit, life-giving fruit. But what was produced, continuing verse 2, but it yielded wild grapes. Do you see what we're being told here? Israel is likened to a vine or a vineyard, and the Lord planted it, calling for it to be fruitful, to be the, the light to the nations around it, but instead it yielded wild fruit. Instead, the vineyard was overrun by animals. Instead of being a light on a hill, it was seduced by the religious practices of the neighboring nations, and they were unfaithful to the Lord. They were rebellious to the Lord. They turned their backs on him. Israel was not a good vineyard. It was a bad vineyard. So given that, do you do you see now how shocking it is when Jesus says to his, his disciples, I am the true vine. To be the true vine, Jesus is saying, I, I am the faithful vine. It's almost like Jesus is telling his disciples, I am the real Israel. 
Do you see what an earthquake this is for the disciples who likely grew up learning to be a good Jew? And to be a good Jew, to be an Israelite is a good thing. To be Israel is to be God's chosen. I'm already in. I've got a ticket to where I need to go because I am part of Israel. And then Jesus says, but I am the true Israel. So if I'm a disciple of Jesus, I'm going to ask, if he's the true Israel, what is he saying about the other Israel? The only Israel I've ever known. If he's the true Israel, am I a part of the what? The false Israel? So if I'm a disciple of Jesus, I'm going to ask all these questions. And again, it's not that Israel is false, it's that it's unfaithful. Jesus is the true Israel in that he fulfilled all the things the nation Israel couldn't. Jesus was the Israel that Israel couldn't be. Okay, so what was Israel supposed to be? Think about that for a second. What was Israel supposed to be? Yes, a light on a hill, a light to to the neighboring nations. Okay, but what does that mean? What, What was Israel's purpose? What was Israel's purpose? Think about it this way. Let's say you and I were going to set out to build a new set of high-rise condos in in downtown Nashville because, you know, we don't have enough of those. We're going to build a high-rise, and we decide to hire an architect. And the architect creates for us a beautiful plan for our building. And then what? The architect might even take it one step further, and and he or she creates for us a a two-scale model of what it's going to look like when it's completed, a small version of the building that could, could fit on top of a table. And you know what? When they finish that model, that to scale model, it, it might just take our breath away. Oh my. Oh my goodness. Look, look at it. I can see it. I can visualize it. I can visualize what it's going to look like once, once they complete it. Okay? But can you imagine how absurd it would be if we told the architect, you know what? This is good. We're good. We're good. We'll, we'll, just, we'll just take this. Keep, keep the model, what about the actual building? No, this is good, thank you. Crazy, right? Why is that crazy? Because the model in no way, shape, or form can do what we set out to do in the beginning. The model pointed us to what would one day be the true thing, a structure that people could actually live in. What was Israel's purpose? Was Israel a model or maybe a pointer? to a final, finished, true product? I'm going to back us up just a little bit more. Remember where it all started. It's like asking, why why did we set out to build a condo? Why did we want to build a condo to begin with? Why do we need to do this? Adam and Eve in the garden, they broke the world. They broke it. Sin came into the world, and with it, everything bad that has ever been and will be. But when the fall of humanity occurred, the Lord from all eternity had a plan in place to redeem the world, to fix it, to restore it, to make it new again. In the same chapter where we read about the fall of man, Genesis 3, we also read about the plan he had in place, and it began to work out in time immediately. Immediately after the fall of our first parents, he told the serpent, from the offspring of the woman, from Eve, would come someone who would fix the world would come someone who would, who would bruise the serpent's head. Through her, through her offspring, the Lord would fix what was broken. The blueprints are already drawn. Then we fast forward a few generations. The Lord made a promise, a covenant to Abraham. 
A covenant to Abraham which further pronounced what he already said in the garden. He told Abraham, beginning in Genesis 12, and then repeated again in Genesis 15 and in Genesis 17, the Lord promised Abraham that through him, through his offspring, all the families of the earth would be blessed. In other words, Abraham, through your offspring, I'm going to fix the world. I'm going to redeem the world and fix what was broken in the garden. Okay, fast forward a couple more generations. Abraham had a grandson whose name was Jacob. Jacob, as the Bible tells us, wrestled with God. He wrestled with him all night, and the scripture tells us that this heavenly figure with whom he wrestled didn't overtake him. In fact, it tells us that Jacob was prevailing. It was as if Jacob was going to win this wrestling match. But then, this heavenly being touched Jacob's hip socket, causing it to pop out of joint, immediately subduing him like Todd Teller pushing a Volvo. But Jacob wouldn't let go. Jacob wouldn't let go. And, and he said, Don't, I will, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. I won't let you go. I won't let you go. Not, not bless me first. So then the man told him, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. Israel means Isra, wrestled with, and El, short for Elohim, God, wrestled with God, Israel. Jacob walked away in the morning after wrestling with God. He walked away with a limp, but he walked away Israel. He walked away as Israel. And, and this is where we get the name Israel, but do you see Jacob or Israel was in the line of Abraham. Through your line, Abraham, I'm going to fix the world. And from this point on, Abraham's line would have a proper name, Israel. So again, what was Israel's purpose? Israel's purpose was to fix the world. Through your line, Abraham, I'm going to fix it all. Israel, Israel was the mechanism by which God would save the world. But what happened? They wandered. Israel wandered. They were unfaithful. They were rebellious. They produced wild grapes. But guess what? The Lord isn't caught off guard by that. The Lord, the Lord wasn't in heaven wringing his hands thinking, oh, now what? This isn't the way I thought it would go at all. No, it doesn't catch him by surprise. Did you notice in Jacob, who later became Israel, Jacob wrestled with the Lord and he walked away with a limp because he was bruised by the Lord. He was bruised by the Lord, but he walked away Israel. He was wounded by the Lord, but he walked away as Israel, the mechanism by which God would save the world. The the one Israel was bruised on, on the path to salvation. We're hearing whispers of the gospel here. Do you hear it? All through the Old Testament, and yes, even in the story of Jacob, who later became Israel, remember, it's just the model. He's just the model. Because what we're really hearing is a story of a new and better Jacob, a new and better Israel, who would wrestle with God and would be bruised by God. For what purpose? To save the world. Through Abraham's line, the Lord would save the world. Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, he labors to tell us in his Gospel, which opens with this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
And then we read the full genealogy there in Matthew of Jesus, starting with Abraham and ending with Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. The Lord kept his promise and brought forth from the offspring of Abraham, the offspring of Israel, finally, the mechanism, mechanism better yet, the one, the one who would save the world. And so this is why Jesus is telling his disciples, I am the true vine. I am the true Israel. I am the faithful Israel. I'm here to do all the things that Israel couldn't do. Israel couldn't be faithful. I will be faithful. Israel before me failed. I will not fail. I am the true Israel. So Jesus drops this bomb by telling them, Simply being in the line of Abraham isn't enough because everyone in the line of, every, of Abraham, everyone in the line of Israel, all the way down, all the way down the line, every last one of them failed to uphold the Lord's standard. Each and every one of them. Every last one of them failed to do what they were supposed to do, which was necessary to fix that which was broken. Every one of them fell short until now. I'm here now, he says. The true Israel is here. The true Israel is here to do what Israel couldn't do. And so he tells his disciples, I'm the true vine, I'm the faithful vineyard. The disciples must have thought, well, <laughs> well, now what are we supposed to do? I've been told my whole life the most important thing was that I am in the line of Abraham, that I am part of Israel. And now you're telling me that there's a, there's a true Israel. How do I do this? If I am not Israel, who is Israel? And so this is our second question. Who is the true Israel? Well, in one respect, we've already answered the question, Jesus. Jesus is the true Israel, but guess what? He doesn't stop there. Look at the different things Jesus told his disciples. I am the true vine. He not only said that, but he said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Now, as you read on, you're going to be distracted by verses that are talking about certain branches being thrown in the fire. Let's just acknowledge that. It's there. It's here. But I also want you to remember the context, the context of where Jesus is, what Jesus is doing, what Jesus is saying. We're still in the upper room. We're on the heels of Jesus telling his disciples, I'm about to go away. I'm about to leave. So do you see what he's addressing at the most basic level here to his disciples? I'm going to go away, but here's how you're going to remain in me, even though I'm not here physically present. I'm the vine, you are the branches. You are connected to me. But he goes on and says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. He's saying, you're going to do all the things Israel couldn't do because I am the true vine and now you're connected to me. And by virtue of the fact that you're connected to me, you will produce fruit, good fruit. You, you, you'll produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These are the things that Paul called the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Paul is carrying on this theme. He's carrying on the theme of the vineyard too. It wasn't just a convenient metaphor for Paul either. He was talking about this. And then he goes on to tell us in the next chapter, Galatians 6. This is ver verses 14 to 16 of Galatians uh, 6. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now listen to this, verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. It's not really about being in the line of Abraham, Paul is saying. It's about being made a new creation in Christ. Verse 16. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy upon them and upon the Israel of God. How are we joined into the Israel of God? Not by being in the bloodline of Abraham, but by the cross, by the cross of Jesus. In other words, do you want to be a part of the new Israel? Do you want to be a part of, of, of the true vine? If you believe in the saving work of Jesus Christ, you are connected to the true vine. If you believe in the saving work of Jesus, you are connected to the true vine and, 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 and you are more, listen to this, if you believe in Jesus and the work that he's done on your behalf, if you believe that, then you are more Israel than an ethnic Jew who doesn't believe in the work of Jesus. You are more closely connected to an ethnic Jew who believes in the saving work of Jesus than you are connected to your own blood relatives. Why? Because all who believe in the saving work of Jesus are connected to the true Israel, the true vine. That's you. That describes you. Lastly, Yes, we believe in the saving work of Jesus. So how do we do that? How do we make ourselves believe? Third point, how can we be a part of the true Israel? Good news, Jesus answers this one for us as well. How are we part of the true Israel? Abide in me, he says. Abide in me. There we go, that's it. We can end the service now. We, we've just got to abide in him, that's all we've got to do. If you want to be a part of the true Israel, we've just got to abide in him. Let's go with, oh, wait a minute. There's, there's one more thing here. It's at the end of verse 5. For, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Nothing is a, is a pretty definitive word. It's very clear. The Greek word here is, is from the root huden, and the definition is I'm given uh, Nothing. Nothing. No further clarification needed. Translation, nothing. So on the one hand, Jesus tells us to be a part of the true vine, you have to abide in me. And yet on the other hand, he's telling us, but apart from me, you can do nothing. How does this work? Who's doing the work here? And what do I need to do? What do I need to do to be a part of the true vine? This isn't unusual in the Bible. It happens all the time. The Lord gives us a command but he also tells us that he gives us the power to carry out this command. Do this, and apart from me, you can do nothing. Both are true. Okay, for real. Here's a real Greek lesson. In this passage, the word abide, meno, is, is in a tense that we really don't have in English. It's in the aorist active imperative tense. That's, that's a fancy term here. What does that mean? Is that past tense? Is that present tense? Yes and yes. I'll read for you the technical definition of the aorist active imperative tense. The action that the verb is describing is the result of something that happened in the past and it gives rise to the action that you are commanded to take in the present. So when he says, abide in me, he's saying, do this and 
you can do this because I've given you the strength to do it. I've tied you into the true vine. You see, the declaration of salvation over you is the work of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. You do nothing. Jesus justifies you before the Father, and there's nothing you can do to add to the work that he's done on your behalf to make you right before the Father. He does it all. Think of it as a, as a legal declaration. Jesus did the work through his life and death on the cross, and because he did that work on your behalf, your status is sealed. You are justified. He abides in you. Okay, now here's the abide in me part. After he justifies you, he then tells you, now that you're saved, eternally so, like David said, eternal grace, now that you're saved, for the rest of your life, I'm going to conform you to my likeness. I'm going to make you like me more and more each day. This is what we call sanctification. The process of being made more and more like Jesus because you see, it's not just the Lord's desire to save you. He wants to save you and make you like his son Jesus. And he will do it. He will do it. It's like he's telling us, yes, you're saved. That's a done deal. But now, I'm going to give you some homework. You have to do this part. Now, according to my kids, homework is apparently the worst thing that can happen to a human being. Just the word alone makes them wince. But here's what they don't realize now. I'm, I'm sure they'll realize someday in the same way that I realized it down the, down the road. Homework, homework is where the magic happens. Right? I think about when I was their age and I was given homework. Yes, there was class time where the teacher would instruct you, show you exactly how you would balance an equation. And you can follow along, you can pay attention, which I know my kids always do. And, and you can even think to yourself, ah, okay, I get it. I see what they're doing. I get it. Then you walk out of the classroom and it flies out of your head. And, and it goes somewhere else. And then you get home hours later. And it's like you're trying to start an old car engine. Why isn't this working? And then you stumble through it, stumbling and stumbling, and then you finally arrive at the answer because you remember. That's it, I get it, I remember. And now it's solidified in your mind just a little bit more, even more so than when your teacher first showed you. The Christian faith works the same way. The Lord saves you, period. But then he wants you to remember over and over and over again how he saved you and from what he saved you. And yes, it seems the way we're wired, the best way for us to learn is through the struggle. Hardship. It seems to leave the biggest impression upon us. When Jesus says, abide in me, inerrant in that command is struggle. We partake in the sufferings of Jesus. Why? Because we're being made like him. You see, he suffered, so it shouldn't surprise us when we suffer, because we're being made like him. We're following in his footsteps and being chiseled into his likeness. Or maybe a better way to say it, he's pruning us. Like he tells us in verse 2, th this is what pruning looks like. Pruning isn't comfortable. There are nutrients that flow through the body of the vine and then that travel down the branches and into the fruit that's on the vine. And some of those branches, they can get long and the nutrients flow all the way through the end of the branches to the very ends, whether there's fruit or not. So the vine dresser clips back the branches. That imagery is meant to convey a bit of hurt or, or discomfort. It's like he's saying, I'm going to cut these things away. 
I'm going to cut the things away from you so I can get more fruit out of you. I'm going to cut away the, the parts that don't bear fruit so that the nutrients can get to the branches that are, are actually bearing fruit. And naturally, this is something that he wants the disciples to understand. Remember where they are. To abide in me is to take up my cross, he's saying. To share in my sufferings. Because think about all that happens after this upper room discourse. They're going to face a lot of suffering, every last one of them. They abide in Christ through their suffering. Remember that. They're abiding in Christ through the suffering and because of the suffering. And they're able to endure the suffering because he abides in them. The same manner he abides in you. Lastly, let's notice this, verse 7. Jesus says this, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. You are nourished by the vine. If you are his, you are nourished by the vine. You are made like the vine. And soon your desires and, 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 uh, and your wishes are reflections of his. You'll be so tightly grafted into the vine to ask for anything outside of his character will seem foolish to you. And this table, these tables right here, they remind us they remind us of the oneness with which we're grafted in to the true vine. We're, we're, reminded, we're reminded through our senses by the physical means as we, as we ingest the bread and the wine. We're reminded, physically reminded, that we have a Savior who abides in us, who gave himself for us, who emptied himself, who emptied himself for us so that he may abide in us and we in him. Would you pray with me? Father, how unbelievably special it is to realize that you abide in us. And because you abide in us, we can, we can do your work. We can, we can take up your cross, not because we're special people, we're, we're certainly not, but because your son is special. And he's pulled us in by doing all the things that Israel before him couldn't do and then dying for our sins. Please help us be reminded of that as we approach this table. Remind us that through his work that we are now and forever united with him, the true Israel, the true vine, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.